0: Well, as we start this evening, I'm going to start with a personal question. A personal question. I hope you don't mind. And the question is this. What about your appearance would you quite like to change? Okay. What about your appearance would you quite like to change? Now, I'm looking for the... Oh, there it is. Good. I found the clicker. That's what I was looking for. Uh, What about your appearance would you like to change? I'll start. I don't mind going... I'm not going to ask you to shout out. Don't worry. But I'll start, (laughs) nonetheless. Uh, I'll lead by example. When I was a teacher... Um, some children, the, the naughty ones, uh, used to make not-so-subtle comments about the size of my forehead. You know, believe it or not. Believe it or not. Okay? Now, thankfully, the one who went the furthest and actually slapped me on the forehead got expelled. So I was quite proud of that one. But uh, you can ask me about that story later. All right? But, you know, there's that, that's something, that's, that's something about my appearance. If I, you know, if I could change it, maybe I would. Uh, I don't know. What about you? What about you? What would you like to change about your appearance? Have you got wrinkles in the wrong places? Uh, A nose too big or too small? uh, Flat or pointy? uh, Hair the wrong colour? Lips not luscious enough? Cheekbones not raised enough? Not enough hair? Too much hair? uh, Too thick hair? Too thin hair? Dry skin? Oily skin? I could go on, couldn't I? I could go on. Well, what is it? What is it? Whatever it is, I'm here to tell you this evening that the answer isn't... Botox or fillers. It's not plastic surgery or travel to Turkey where you can get very reasonable hair replacement therapy, I'm told. Uh, No, it's not face cream from boots or hair dye. No, the answer is wisdom. The answer is wisdom. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things I mentioned, and they might have their place. But I mention them because when it comes to appearance, we're bombarded like nothing before in history, in human history, aren't we? with a beauty standard, increasingly for men, just as much as for women, actually. And we mustn't ignore the teaching of the Bible or the opinion of God, who says that though man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. Who says in 1 Peter, your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold, jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And you know the teacher in this chapter in Ecclesiastes would agree that wisdom, that the inward life, is far more important. And indeed that wisdom can change our appearance in some strange way. I'll talk about that a bit. Notice, first of all, that he links wisdom, he links wisdom and appearance three times in, in these verses. Chapter 7, verse 3, he says, a sad face is good for the heart. Other way round, just a link. In verse 12, it says, uh, wisdom preserves those who have it. It's better than the oil of Ule, or whatever you might use. And then 8, verse 1, the climax, really where I got the idea for rather silly sermon title from. It's not going to work, is it, after all that? No, never mind. There we go. Um, Why wisdom is better than face cream. What does it say there? Chapter 8, verse 1. A a person's wisdom brightens brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. What a picture that is. A person's wisdom brightens the face and changes its hard appearance. Isn't that a brilliant, beautiful picture? I mean, don't we want that? Wouldn't it be great if our faces were brightened? Wouldn't it be fantastic if someone walking into Christchurch Harpenden for the first time uh, were visibly confronted with the brightness of people's faces? Whatever that might look like. However they might put it. They might not quite put it like that. But if we think this is an attractive picture, then we do well to listen to the teacher in these verses on wisdom. Now, the verses we had read that chapter... They're essentially a collection of proverbs and sayings, and yet I think it's possible to discern some kind of big picture lessons about wisdom from them. That said, as you've read them, and read them again now, you may well have questions about certain verses, and there's lots here, and I'm not going to have time to comment on all of them, uh, but I have read them and thought about them, I I can't say much more than that. Uh, And so if there's something you don't understand or you want to ask me about, then by all means come up afterwards and say, what about this verse? Doesn't it contradict what you were saying? Because there are some things that on first reading seem slightly contradictory. And I won't have time to deal with everything this evening. But, but, the teacher speaks about wisdom. He says wisdom is better than face cream. It changes somebody's hard appearance. Wow, what a picture. The problem is how do we get it? How do we get wisdom? We can't go to Boots and find it on the shelf. There's not a nice neon sign saying, Wisdom, purchase here. Buy buy three, get it for two. The price of two. That kind of thing. No, instead, the teacher takes us through these verses and he says, if we're going to find wisdom, which will brighten our face, we must be ready to do four things. I'll tell them up front, and they're more or less sequential through the verses, and then we'll, we'll walk through the passage and see them. You've got to learn from tough times. Learn from tough times. Don't don't worry, they won't all come up now. I'll just tell you them now. You've got to learn from tough times. Avoid the easy outs. Consider God's perspective. And endure frustrations. Okay? Four things for a wise life. Wisdom which will preserve your, 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 your life. Wisdom which will change your appearance, says the teacher. So firstly, learn from tough times. I wonder if you've ever been in a car where the gears get changed down too quickly. Someone goes from fifth down to second. The the car kind of bucks and rears, doesn't it? The car lurches. It makes a horrible sound. The revs go through the roof. We get the literary equivalent in verse 1 of chapter 7. We're looking at the first six verses here to see this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. A good name is better than fine perfume. And here comes the crunching gear change. And the day of death... Better than the day of birth. Oh, wow, okay. Wasn't expecting that. But notice all through these six verses, there are constant contrasts made, aren't there? And the seemingly worse thing, says the teacher, is always better. Did you notice that? The seemingly worse thing is always better. The day of death is better than the day of birth. House of mourning is better than a house of feasting. Frustration is better than laughter, verse 3. A house of mourning is a better place to be than the house of pleasure, he says, verse 4. It's better to hear the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, or even worse, the laughter of fools, verse 5 and 6. What's going on here? What's going on? Well, this list of contrasts, contrast, 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 comes in response to the question of verse 12 in chapter 6, where the teacher says, what is it good for a person to do? In their life, So the teacher isn't just a killjoy. We know he's not because we've read passages elsewhere in the book where he commends a simple joy in life. No, rather, he's using some extreme examples to make the basic point that we all know deep down that the tough times in life will almost certainly shape us and grow us and refine us more than the good times in life the tough times in life will almost certainly shape us and grow us and refine us more than the good times in life. Now, that's something that's uh, like the opposite of what many people will say, isn't it, about suffering. Many people will say, well, the smart thing to do in life is to avoid pain, to run away from suffering. It's one of the reasons we put such a high value in our society on the NHS, And why we get equally as irritated when we don't get the service that we think we should expect. So one of the reasons you can find and buy insurance policies for pretty much anything under the sun. Anything in life. Because we're willing to pay a little bit extra now if it means we might avoid some pain later down the line. But there's a futility to all that escapism, isn't there? Because second half of verse 2. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take that to heart. There's nothing ultimately the NHS can do to stop death and your insurance package might give you a good payout but it can't bring you back to life. And so wisdom, says the teacher, consists of this, of having a healthy dose of reality that death is the destiny of everyone, reckoning with that now and living in the light of it. How did the psalmist put it in that psalm that we started with? This evening, do you remember those famous words? Teach us to number our days, says the psalmist, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And the teacher is using some extreme language and stark contrasts to point out that wisdom doesn't lie in pursuits which ignore the reality of death, in feasting and laughing and pleasure and singing. But it does lie in reckoning with the ultimate end of every person. Of course, the believer has an explanation, not just for death, but for all suffering on the road to death. Human rebellion against the creator. And so the believer doesn't need to do everything they can to avoid suffering. They don't need to run away from it or minimize it or shrug it off or deny it happened or protest in an endless self-destructive manner, angrily against it. No, the teacher says the wise life is one which is lived facing that person's end, squarely in the face, and using their suffering along the way to help them think aright about their life. Now this is a hard message, isn't it? It's tough to think about this, especially perhaps if we're going through a really hard time right now. But there's no martyr complex here. The wise person doesn't seek out suffering. Nor, I don't think, is the teacher saying that they're to have a permanently sad face and always have a slow smile. But they are to use the suffering they encounter in life to form them, to shape them in godliness, that they may number their days, that they may gain a heart of wisdom. Let me give you one illustration of this in case you're not convinced. If we flick on, uh, we'll see a picture, hopefully, of a horseshoe. I wonder, how has this horseshoe been made to be like it is now. Well, first, it's been placed in a furnace, hasn't it? Many hundreds of degrees hot. Fierce, fierce fire. Then it's been hammered into shape, pounded repeatedly again and again by a hammer over an anvil. You see, the horseshoe is only a horseshoe thanks to the fire and the hammer and the anvil. A horseshoe does not become a horseshoe by sitting in the sun with a pina colada. It doesn't happen, does it? Secondly, let me give you a human example. This is from Philip Yancey, the author. says this, Your world is dark, safe and secure. You're bathed in warm liquid, cushioned from shock. You do nothing for yourself. You are fed automatically and a murmuring heartbeat assures you that someone larger than you fills all your needs. Your life consists of simple waiting, You're not sure what to wait for, but change seems far away and scary. You meet no sharp objects, no pain, no threatening adventures, a fine existence. One day, you feel a tug. The walls are falling in on you. Those soft cushions are now pulsing and beating against you, crushing you downwards. Your body is bent double, your limbs twisted and wrenched, you're falling upside down. For the first time in your life, you feel pain. You're in a sea of rolling matter, then more pressure, almost too intense to bear. Your head is squeezed flat, and you're pushed harder and harder into a dark tunnel. Oh, the painful noise, more pressure. You hurt over all over. You hear a groaning sound and an awful, sudden fear rushes in on you, and it's happening. Your world is collapsing. You're sure it's the end. You see a piercing, blinding light, Cold, rough hands pull at you. A painful slap. Wah! Congratulations. You've just been born. You've just been born. Value the tough side of life, says the teacher. It can be a great life giver. Well, that's the first thing the teacher has to say. In the pursuit of wisdom, in the pursuit of wisdom, we should value the tough Times in our lives, we should learn from them. And secondly, we should avoid the temptation of the easy out. The easy out. Um, we're looking here at the next few verses down from verse seven onwards. Wisdom, according to the teacher, will avoid, include avoiding four common temptations. Four common temptations. Four temptations which are like trip the trip wires to the easy to the wisdom, wise life. Sorry. Temptations which are really all the quick way out of a situation. They might bring temporary relief, but they certainly won't bring wisdom. The first one is extortion and bribery. Extortion and bribery. Did you see that in verse 7? What does he say? Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. I uh, have a a friend of mine who's a a Gambian guy, uh, a Christian, And uh, he was over there in, in Gambia and he told a story of one time where he got stopped by the police after dark because one of his rear lights was out and the policeman knocked on the window. Sir, your rear light is out. And Matthias, my friend, decided to call the policeman's bluff. He pulled out his phone and he called his wife. Darling, he said, I won't be home tonight. The policeman's seen that I have a rear light out and I'm not paying him a bribe. He refused, flat out, called his bluff and sat the evening out. and It ended up that the policeman ran out of patience before Matthias did and then he drove home. <laughs> you see, resisting a bribe, resisting a bribe, it's the wise way of living. Now, mercifully, bribery and corruption in that kind of explicit sense is not so blatantly part of our cultural fabric. We have our own problems, don't we? But there's always the temptation to do things for money. Always. To cut corners, to tweak expenses, to fiddle the tax return, to resist the urge. Like my Gambian friend, therein lies wisdom. Therein lies wisdom. Secondly, pride. Pride. The second easy out. The second temptation, uh, uh, the tripwire of wisdom, is pride. The teacher says pride will wreck the wise life. Look at verse 8. Uh, The end of the matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. It's contrasted with patience, isn't it, there in verse 8? But then I suppose pride is often hasty and quick. Pride is impatience in many ways, isn't it? Pride often characterizes the person who rushes in, cocksure and assertive, not the stamina of the marathon runner. Patience is required to build anything of any worth. Apparently it takes 10,000 hours of practice of something to become an expert. I wonder what your expertise would be in. I mean, the London Symphony Orchestra doesn't happen because a few friends pick up some musical instruments and start to fiddle. It just doesn't happen like that, does it? No, it comes from practice and patience. Arsenal don't play such sublime football by accident, do they, they? Absolutely they do not. Even your most natural YouTuber, okay, if you watch lots of YouTube, even your most natural YouTuber will, I promise you, have watched hours and hours and hours of videos themselves and will have made countless videos which you don't see because they're not good enough. That's how it works in life. People are patient and they put the time in and they practice. And patience, not pride, not hastiness, characterizes wisdom. The third trip wire, the third easy out in any situation, anger, anger, anger. It's tough, isn't it, when you're quickly provoked in your spirit. When somebody does something to you and you just want to explode, they've pushed your buttons. Often it's your siblings, right? They know just how to needle you, if you have them. They just know just how to needle you, just how to get you. Well, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, says the teacher, verse 9. For anger resides in the lap of fools. There is a righteous kind of anger. There is a righteous anger. But that's not the anger described here. This is being quickly provoked in your spirit. The thing you say or mutter or do in the moment because you're angry. You're angry and you lash out. And later you realise it wasn't a good thing to say. It wasn't a good thing to do. But by that point it's too late. The wise life comes a cropper by anger. And then the fourth easy out. Nostalgia. Nostalgia. Nostalgia is when you look back and think that the past is better than today. Did you see verse 10, the final tripwire that the teacher outlines in these little verses? He says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. There's little benefit, says the teacher, to a life lived constantly in the past. In better days, in sunnier times, personally or corporately, as a church or as a town or as a nation, we might say, oh, I liked it when the town was smaller when there were less cars around. I liked this country when it was different, you know, 30 years ago, 40, just simpler, it seemed. Says the teacher. There's no wisdom to that kind of a life. No, face reality, face today, whatever it brings. The wise life is one lived, resisting the easy outs. And then thirdly, the teacher says, that the wise life is one where somebody is encouraged to gain... Perspective To gain perspective. We could have the next point up, that would be great. To consider God's perspective. The next section from verse 11 on there starts with the benefit of wisdom. It's a preservative. It's a preservative. Wisdom is a good thing, says the teacher. It benefits those who see the sun. It's a shelter. It As money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. It's a preservative. It's a preservative. But why is wisdom like this? Why does it preserve life? Well, it seems to have something to do with the way in which wisdom gives somebody the divine eye view on life. Even if as humans, we can't see every detail just as he does. In some ways, these verses from verse 11 to 18 are extremely frustrating, aren't they? i I read them and this is frustrating. Uh, The teacher says, no one can discover anything about their future. Okay, verse fourteen, the end of verse fourteen, and God has sometimes which are good, yeah, and sometimes which are bad. Beginning of verse fourteen, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this: God has made the one as well as the other; He's made them both. So it all amounts to what? Just a big, hmm, a big shrug? Is that what the teacher is saying? Well, no. The teacher says if we think about this, if we think that God is in control of all things, that He's sovereign over everything, the good times and the bad then it will actually lead to wisdom. Wisdom. He's encouraging us to consider what God has done. Did you see that in verse 13? Who can straighten what he has made crooked? We can't, in other words. Nobody can. Because he's in control. He's in control. Now, so often when we look at life, it looks like this, doesn't it? I think we've got a picture on the sides. Um, oh, we've got both of them. Never mind. Uh, it looks like the one on the top left doesn't it? So often when we look at life, it looks like the picture in the top left. And the distressing or frustrating thing is that it might look like this for as long as we live, okay, to our eyes. In fact, it probably will to some extent. But in faith with the teacher, we remember that in the good and the bad times, God has made both of them. And his picture is always perfect. It's always perfect. All right, we might say, but what are verses 15 to 18 all about? I mean, did you see that there? It seems a bit contradictory, doesn't it? How can you be over-wise or have too much righteousness? Is that even possible? What's he talking about? And, And what does the teacher mean when he says at the end of verse 18, it's good to grasp the one, foolishness, and not let go of the other, wisdom. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. What does he mean? Well, I think the teacher here is calling us to have some perspective, God's perspective, even on the pursuit of wisdom. Even on the pursuit of wisdom. Not to put all of our hope in being wise. Because as verse 13 and 14 say, we can't straighten what is crooked. We can't do that. We can't understand the future. We don't know it. We can't predict the future. We can't see all the details from God's perspective. So we should put even the pursuit of wisdom into that perspective too not to place all of our wisdom all of our hope in wisdom as being something which will totally deliver us and save us and just as wickedness and folly and over wickedness will lead to an early death that's what he says isn't it? verse 17 don't be over wicked, don't be a fool why die before your time? it's kind of demonstrably true I suppose if you abuse drugs for the whole of your life your life will probably come sooner your end will probably come sooner than if you didn't. But just as that example is true, so says the teacher, there's a destruction inherent in placing all of your hope and your, in righteousness and wisdom, in your righteousness and your wisdom, because after all, it doesn't guarantee you a longer life. What does he say? The righteous perish in their righteousness. The wicked live long in their wickedness. I could list you a number of godly, wise, Righteous people who've met an early end. You may know some. You may know some. No. Rather, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Here's the teacher's point. True wisdom will have a divine perspective. The wise person won't place all their hope in wisdom, per se. But they certainly won't live like a fool either. They'll see that they are not in control. They'll seed and bow before the divine ordering of events, even if they can't understand them, even if life looks like the back of a tapestry for as long as they live. Such is the beginning of wisdom. Well, we're nearly there. The fourth thing, the fourth way that the teacher lays out before us, a wise life, is to endure or uh, expect frustration. Verse 19, wisdom is a powerful thing. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Maybe you know someone who does the work of multiple other people. I recently met the receptionist and admin person in an organisation, and she was introduced to me as Rosie. I said, this is Rosie. She does a bit of admin. And then they stopped and they said, really, she runs the place. She's in charge, basically. This person, in their own way, was acknowledging that the whole organisation depended on the powerful work that this one quiet but wise and efficient person did. Wow. So to be wise is a very powerful thing, but it's not easy. Far from it. So we should expect and endure frustrations if we're looking for the wise life. And the first frustration is sin. Verse 20 is the only verse in Ecclesiastes which is quoted in the New Testament. And you might recognise it. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is building his case for the total depravity of humanity, the way in which we've all turned our backs on God and gone our own way. And what does he say? Indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. But not only does our mistakes and sins stop us from living a wise life, which is true, Wisdom itself is also elusive. It's elusive, isn't it? And I I suppose we know this too. What does he say? All this I tested by wisdom and I said, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. It was beyond me. Verse 25, he seeks, he turns to seek out wisdom, but he can't find her. I went to find wisdom in the scheme of things, to understand the stupidity of weakness, the madness of folly, but he can't find her. Now perhaps... You bristled slightly at the... It seems quite misogynistic, doesn't it? Verse 28, while I was still searching but not finding... He's talking about this search for wisdom. He says, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Hmm. What's he going on about there? Why does he say that? But I don't think he's making a comment on the relative merits of the sexes. The context is clearly the search for wisdom, right? And... Uh, we could look down at verse uh, 32, uh, sorry, verse 29. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, all of humanity, men and women upright, but they've gone in search of many schemes. So the whole of humanity has wandered away, wandered off. It's not that men are better than women, and if they are better, they're only one-tenth of one percent better in statistical terms. Hardly great praise. We can also see in his search there uh, perhaps... Wisdom personified as a woman. Uh, There is in Proverbs 31, we're we're introduced to the wise woman. Dame wisdom, she's called. And so perhaps that's what's going on here too. The teacher is searching for wisdom and and he's saying, I can't find her. I can't find her. She's not there. The point is that the search for wisdom is elusive. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's always just out of reach. Find me the person who's arrived at the wise life says the teacher. Find me that person, the truly righteous one. It's almost impossible to lay our hands on that person, whoever they may be. So there we have it, the pursuit of wisdom, the wise life. And so perhaps we're left with the teacher in chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise? Who is like the wise? Who are they? Who knows the explanation of things? Well in our series we've been thinking about Ecclesiastes and we've been considering that as it touches on lots of different topics in life, the teacher would have us look up and look forward. So there should be a slide, hopefully, which might jog your memories if you if you were here for the first half. Now, here we are in the middle and we're wondering about lots of topics in life and here's this perplexing topic of wisdom. And I'm not sure that anything I've said has helped you necessarily live the wise life, I don't know. But what should we do when we're confronted? With the elusiveness of life, the elusiveness of wisdom. Well, the teacher says, and I'm getting this really from the last couple of verses in chapter 12, and you can look at that later if you'd like. We're to look up to God and look forward to heaven. And as we do that, who is like the wise? Well, we find that he has come to earth to embody the wise life in the person of Christ. Click on one side, we'll see this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians You are in Christ Jesus, he's speaking to Christians here, who has become for us wisdom from God. Jesus, in his earthly life, embodied wisdom. Just think about it. His was a life lived in light of his death. He never wasted his suffering, did he? Think about that. His was a life which avoided the tripwires of wisdom, the things that are going to trip you up. Never proud, never angry, never corrupt, never nostalgic. Wow, that's a wise life. His was a life lived with a divine eye view, with God's perspective, wasn't it? Trusting that even the plan of God the Father when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, about to go to die on the cross. And what did he say? Yet not my will, but yours be done. A divine perspective. He is the answer to that question in verse 1 of chapter 8, isn't it? Who is like the wise? Who is the wise? Who is the wise person? That that slightly uh, 1984 version of the NIV before he says, who is the wise man? Or who is that wise man? Jesus, Jesus, he is the answer to all the frustrated, elusive searching of the teacher, Christ, the wisdom of God. So would you change your appearance? Would you have your, your face brightened? Would your hard appearance be changed? Well, would you come to Jesus and let his life and his wisdom fill you? And see how the change he brings about you inside transforms you from the inside out. We're going to sing in response to what we've heard. We're going to sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. Christ who has become for us the wisdom of God.